Ever wonder what makes the greats great? What makes the successful successful? What makes the brilliant brilliant? Our Tuesday meetups with the celebrities of pharma industry and science are your one-stop shop to all these answers and more. Join us for Pies of Life, an initiative of the Biopatrika Industry Mentorship Program, where we bring your dream mentors to you. Uh, I've had the good fortune of having known uh, Naren was he was at Merck, and so. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it brings back good memories and it's nice to see him looking young as ever. So, uh, uh, so uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Devin Marotra. Uh, I have worked in pharma for 30 years, uh, 25 of which have been at Merck. I started out, well, I, I grew up in India uh, and I had very good role models. Uh, my father's father was Mahatma Gandhi's personal assistant. So we, we grew up in a very... Uh, very unique environment uh, under very interesting ground rules and principles. And that's where I think I, I learned the, the value of what I call the seven keys. So uh, if I if you don't mind, can I can I just show just a couple of slides, Naren? I'll, I'll keep it uh, to nine minutes. Yeah. This is my, my super quick journey. So, uh, I, I, I had two, two great role models growing up in India and really the, the uh, the main point that I want to make is uh, what I learned from them uh, are, are part of these, what I call the seven P values for success. And so the first, of course, the seven P values, I mean, uh, uh, seven keywords that start with the letter P. Uh, so the first is passion. I learned passion, you know, both from my, my mom's uh, father with a PhD in physics uh, and then my, my dad's dad, uh, so I learned uh, perseverance. So, you know, as, as you guys think about what are you going to do next after your postdocs, again, I thought I might just reflect back as we have this conversation in terms of, you know, what are the kinds of things that have, that have made me reasonably successful uh, in, my, in my career? Uh, and so it's, it's passion, it's perseverance. Uh, I actually did train in India. I did my bachelor's and master's in pretty theoretical statistics. Uh, I was so happy to hear University of Delaware summit. So I actually got my PhD at, at University of Delaware uh, 30 years ago uh, in, in statistics. And uh, I then went on, spent about five and a half years in the Chicago area, worked for a drug company there. Uh, didn't really enjoy it. I mean, I learned a lot, but I really wanted to go to Merck. So every, every year I was interested in going to Merck and I finally made it there in 1996. Uh, so exactly 25 years ago. Uh, but you know, in my early years, uh, again, some other uh, key value terms that sort of became important in my development was uh, proficiency, uh, perseverance, uh, participation. These are all really, really important. Uh, and then uh, I won't go through my Merck experience other than to say, you know, uh, as you guys sort of, if you think about what is gonna happen next, so either you will uh, remain in academia or you might go to industry or maybe work with the government and we, we can talk about, you know, the, the opportunities there, certainly from uh, a data analytics and statistics perspective, I, I'm happy to share my thoughts, uh, but you know, 
if you go my my traditional route, what I call my traditional route, you start out, you know, as a working on projects and you become a team leader, you move on to group leadership and then you become, you know, leading departments. And again, uh, that's less important, again, than going back to the P's. Passion, you know, you got to maintain passion. You have to get into the game. So participation is, is key. You cannot sit on the sidelines. Partnership is really important. I mean, uh, Naranda is a CEO. He knows better than anybody else the importance of partnerships, right? Uh, and, and prioritization. You might be super excited about working on many different projects. You cannot do it all. You have to prioritize. Uh, and, uh, you know, and again, what you prioritize is up to you, but it should be driven by something you're passionate about, a way you have opportunities to participate and, uh, and so on. Uh, you, you have to keep making invest, investments internally where you are, as well as externally. Uh, and if, you, if things go well, then you are, you're going to get recognized. That creates more opportunities to influence, to have an impact, and then it goes back to uh, that cycle. Uh, so that was just a, a whirlwind tour because I, I do want to show you two slides in terms of what do statisticians and data uh, scientists do in pharma. I'm sure you you you've gotten a good understanding from Narend, but I will I'll just use two slides uh, just in in, a, in a one, one or two minutes. So this is just a summary of the seven significant key values for success: a proficiency, passion, participation, perseverance, partnership, prioritization, and perhaps uh, the most important, which is your professional reputation. Right as as you invest in your development. And in the development of, of those around you, uh, you know, your reputation is going to be your greatest asset for your entire career. Uh, now, most of these things are obvious, but sort of, you know, I thought it might be worth reinforcing uh, the value of these. And then my last slide here was just, uh, you know, because we grew up in what is often called a Gandhian environment. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of, of Gandhi is, uh, actions express priorities. And, uh, you know, again, just keep in mind that as you think about what you want to do next, or what you have been doing, what you might be doing in the future, you know, if you drive your actions through priorities that are well aligned with where you can make a difference, uh, where you can add value, and where you can continue to build on your passion, you know, that is what this is all about. So these are the guiding principles that I grew up with. And these are guiding principles that uh, I'm very happy to report, at least in big pharma, there are some companies where this is, this is the kind of atmosphere where people thrive because they're given an environment uh, where you are, you are going to develop and you're going to do well and you're going to do, help others do well. Uh, so, with that, I'm going to go to my last two slides and I wanted to share with you uh, what, you know, just two slides, what, what it is that I do and, you know, my team and I do pretty much on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so uh, I, I lead a, a group of statisticians and data scientists um, who work on a, a number of projects. We are a group of about 75, 80 people and, uh, so these are some of the examples that uh, you know, the project work that we work very closely with other subject matter experts. Uh, 
And so Merck, and there's, there's nothing uh, proprietary here. So that's why, yeah. So uh, oncology early development, uh, until about seven years ago, Merck, uh, the company that where I work, uh, until about seven, eight years ago, Merck didn't really have that much uh, of an investment uh, in oncology in, in cancer treatments, but uh, that has changed substantially. Uh, and so we of course have a leading biologic called Keytruda that has been already approved for almost 20 different types of cancer. Uh, and you know, uh, uh, the drug doesn't work. It, it works for a lot of patients, but not in everyone. And so uh, many companies, including Merck, are investing heavily in other new uh, compounds in oncology. And, uh, you know, they, we, we have, we are sometimes we are the victims of our own success where we have an amazing pipeline. We have an amazing group of scientists that we work closely with. So we have internally, Again, all you know, public knowledge, more than 20 different types of compounds uh, in the uh, cancer space that are being developed. And so statistically speaking, there are these very interesting opportunities to do what are called umbrella trials. And so uh, the statisticians and, and the data scientists work very closely with uh, our colleagues in clinical, in commercial, in regulatory, in manufacturing, uh, on, in, uh, on the biologics and the drug side, uh, where we are, this is an example of the kind of thing, there's room for innovation where you might look at say maybe three different compounds and you really don't know which one of these is going to be the most promising. You cannot do a large scale, you know, pivotal phase three trial for every compound in development, it's too expensive. So uh, there are some very creative ways where we can do early screening of these compounds in these smaller scale clinical trials. So tremendous opportunities for the statisticians working with, uh, like I said, other subject matter experts to, to, to screen uh, in an efficient way, you know, what is the best compound, the best compounds for a certain type of cancer. And so this is done under something called umbrella trial framework. Um, we also, uh, invest quite heavily uh, and we are very closely involved uh, in an area called oncology biomarkers where uh, these drugs and biologics do not work in everyone, as I said earlier. And so again, using gene expression information uh, as an example, uh, or better on, you know, getting a better understanding uh, of the tumor microenvironment, uh, we are able to sort of zoom in closer into which of these types of compounds is likely to succeed uh, in clinical trials. Uh, so this is a com this type of work. Uh, the results uh, feed into our discovery efforts to help identify new types of compounds and new types of mechanisms in terms of how you can harness the immune system to beat cancer. But they also move in the direction of what are called companion diagnostics, where you might have you might have determined uh, unambiguously through clinical trials that you have say a biomarker such as PDL1 expression levels or something called MSI high or tumor uh, uh, TMB, um, uh, tumor uh, burden. And again, uh, very, very important role and tremendous opportunities for statisticians and data analysts uh, to really have an impact uh, in this biomarker space. Uh, and then moving to the top right, uh, this is, uh, 
you know, we do about maybe 50 to 60 clinical trials in what's called the clinical pharmacology space. Most of these are clinical trials that enter what are called first in human studies. Uh, and mo most of these are outside oncology, outside cancer. So for, for other types of diseases where you go into healthy volunteers, oftentimes medical students, uh, you know, from Penn, for example, uh, or, or other medical schools, they volunteer to participate in these trials. And we really want to get an early read on some of these compounds, you know, are these, uh, you know, are these drugs generally well tolerated and appear to be reasonably safe before we can uh, start using them and trying them out in patients. Uh, and there are newer technologies that are being looked at all under a broad umbrella called uh, digital R&D. And so there are examples where you might have, you know, in the old days, the patient would come to the clinic, the hospital, and, and they would draw blood to look at, you know, maybe drug levels or, or whatever it is you're looking for in the blood. Now, in some cases, the patient doesn't have to do that. They can just take a, uh, using this technology, this dried blood spot technology, they just basically, you know, take a, a uh, they prick their finger, uh, they take a tiny uh, amount of blood, they basically put it in this and they, they ship it. I mean, they, they, they mail it uh, in the mail and, and gets to the site and that's where the, the analysis is done. There are also, uh, there's a lot of, uh, in the digital R&D looking at the, these mobile technologies, tremendous, tremendous opportunities for statisticians and data, uh, data analysts uh, and data scientists to really, you know, help figure out the, the amount of data being collected is huge, huge. So the question is, you know, how do you make sense? How do you detect signal from very noisy data? Um, there's an area called experimental medicine where this is, again, these are very, very interesting, small focused trials uh, that may not even involve giving anybody any new drug or an experimental drug, but just understanding, you know, whether it's is for uh, some lung disease, celiac disease, or maybe you're making something uh, to prevent ticks or like say Lyme disease, you know, what happens uh, when a tick bites you? Uh, what is the cascade of events that happen that lead to Lyme disease? We actually have people who volunteer in some of these experimental medicine trials who volunteer to, to be bit to be bitten by these ticks. And then we make the right measurements. Uh, we, we design the, these trials working with the other subject matter experts. We collect the data, we analyze the, the data and collectively as a team, we decide what does this mean? What to do next? Uh, and then last but not least uh, on the slide is this, um, is the uh, pharmacogenetics. So uh, I think it was Sean who said you were a statistical geneticist. So, yeah, so we, we actually invest one, we are very, one of the few companies that invest very heavily in pharmacogenetics, where we are trying to link uh, human genetics with drug response. And so here is an example. I believe one of you mentioned you work in the asthma area. Uh, so there's something here for everyone where this is in the, uh, a pharmacogenetic study where we were able to, uh, in just a 110 patient clinical trial, we were able to link a particular DNA variant uh, to uh, drug response uh, in, in asthma. And so this, this was, you know, I'll spare you the details, but read 
the, these are the, the patients who did have that, that DNA polymorphism, at least one copy of the minor allele. And so there's a very strong treatment effect in these types of patients, not much in the other types of patients. So here's a real example of, of precision of personalized medicine. And we then took this, this read, we, we were able to do another trial and replicate this finding. So again, statisticians play a key role in enab enabling such discoveries uh, and confirming them. Uh, and then my, this here, my last slide. So again, this is looking to the left of clinical trials. We actually do a lot of work in what's called the discovery space or, or preclinical. Uh, so uh, one of you mentioned working uh, in Boston and actually working uh, with some more colleagues in Cambridge. So we work very, my team works very closely with that Cambridge team. Uh, and so there's a guy named, uh, whose name is Topher Woke, uh, who's there. And we actually, one of my guys set up his bioinformatics pipeline. Uh, so again, uh, the application involved microbiome. We do a lot of machine learning. We've been doing this for the past 20 years. A uh, lot of work in imaging, uh, uh, in, in safety assessment, uh, in, in these, these preclinical models. Uh, using machine learning for, you know, in an area uh, in chemistry called QSAR, Quantitative Structural Association Relationships. Um, and last but not least on the right portion of the slide uh, is, is what's called the chemistry manufacturing and controls. We just refer to this very loosely as manufacturing. Uh, again, tremendous opportunities to use statistical design of experiments, statistical learning and statistical application uh, to help uh, you know, make sure that the drugs, the biologics, the vaccines that we are making have the right qualities uh, and so on and so forth. So I spoke more than I wanted to, my apologies, but hopefully this gives you a glimpse of the world that my team lives in and the kinds of projects that we work on. So I'll stop there and happy to take reactions and questions. Thank you, thank you, Tim. Uh, I think I have a question. I, I just, uh, that was from the first slide when you uh, showed the biomarker discovery. So what, um, in, you, in the algorithm, what kind of data sets do you, or what kind of experimental data sets do you, uh, do you analyze? Is it like mass, like LCMS based data set or uh, which is mostly in proteomics, lipidomics, or uh, metabolomics sector, or is it like purely genomics-based screening? Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, the, the, sh the short answer is uh, all of the above. So yeah, so we, we are, uh, we, we collect proteomics, genomics, we, we, and as you know, the newer technologies are, are coming around, things are getting cheaper uh, to collect more data. And so, so really, this is this is understanding what is happening uh, in the the tumor microenvironment, and looking at it from every possible angle, uh, and linking linking what you are seeing in the tumor microenvironment for for that cancer patient, uh, and seeing how is that associating with whether or not that person is responding to certain types of treatments, because this gives us clues as to maybe some types of people are responding, some are not. And could it be explained by some differences either in their tumor microenvironment or could be explained that plus a combination you know, of that and maybe their, their host DNA uh, environment and so on. Yeah, uh, 
thank you so much for the amazing presentation. Uh, I have a question. Uh, how uh, did you manage to like uh, get exposure uh, to all areas of uh, statistics, including uh, the early stage, late stage, and even like non-clinical statistics uh, while working in the industry? Yeah, uh, great question, Chang. So, you know, I remember I, I used those, those seven p-values, and so uh, my, my my passion has always been to uh, I, I get very concerned uh, if my uh, my comfort zone becomes too narrow. So I'm I'm always expanding my comfort zone, and so I'm constantly wanting to try new things. Uh, so I know that there are a lot of people, a, a lot of statisticians in in the pharma industry who will start out maybe in the preclinical area and they will remain there for the rest of their life. Or they will start out in say late, late stage clinical development and they will stay there for the rest of their life. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, everyone has their own passion. Everyone has their own journey. Uh, so I, I am particularly interested in wanting to learn more. Uh, and so I've had the good fortune of being able to work everywhere from you know, statistical applications all the way from, from discovery, uh, you know, from chemistry applications, all the way to uh, preclinical, clinical trials, post-marketing, uh, epidemiology, uh, and, and so on. So my, my way to summarize this is, you know, keep trying new things and, and, and don't be afraid to fail because really the only way to succeed is to fail because that's, that's how you learn. Yeah, thank you for a great answer. I really admire your intellectual curiosity. Well, thank, thank you for using that term because that, that is a key term. Uh, people who are curious uh, tend to be uh, successful. So it's, 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 not, it's not a must have, but uh, it's often a, a good trait of somebody who is going to succeed in life. Uh, Akshay, I, I don't think you uh, you were on the call when we introduced each other. Yeah, sorry, I've just been traveling a lot today, so I didn't um, get time to get on this call immediately. Sorry. <clears throat> um, thank you so much for sharing the presentation. I caught a few of the slides, but it seemed very interesting. Even so, so I was wondering. I, I've seen a lot of companies out here. So I'm currently located in Toronto. And I've seen a lot of companies out here, especially in discovery, um, using AI and machine learning in discovery phases. And I, I caught towards the end of your presentation that you're also looking to implement that in that CCMC, as you mentioned in your last slide. So what, um, why do you feel that companies are not investing more in that area as of yet? Is, there, uh, is it just because investors are more excited to uh, have AI in discovery phases, or is it a slowly shifting phase into implementing AI and machine learning in all other areas of um, developing a, what's called a pharmaceutical drug? Yeah, great question. So uh, AI and machine learning are probably the most uh, popular terms uh, these days. Uh, it's, it's impossible to, to escape from anybody mentioning these terms. So, uh, so at Merck, interestingly, we actually began using machine learning about 22 years ago. Uh, and uh, it was mostly being used at that time uh, in, uh, in the chemistry space. 
where we we had developed we actually worked with uh, with Leo Bryman uh, and 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 some at, at Berkeley and then some folks at Stanford. And in fact, one of uh, if you're familiar with some of these more popular tools in machine learning, there's a tool called Random Forest. So uh, the first R code for Random Forest was actually written by Andy Liao in my shop, like you know, 20 plus years ago. Uh, so we've been doing it for a long time, well well before it became a buzzword. Uh, but it while it started out in in the chemistry area, trying to uh, screen different compounds. Uh, um, it then evolved fairly quickly into other applications. And where we have been in the last 10 years uh, with, with machine learning, uh, it, is, it has become a very dominant tool uh, in, in clinical trials and more so uh, in precision medicine where uh, we've been using machine learning tools in the genomics area, but we've also been using machine learning tools in uh, in routine clinical trials where you might do say uh, a mid-stage trial and you know maybe in an overall average sense, it looks like this new drug looks promising. And the question is when you invest in, in the next final stage of testing in your pivotal phase three trial, do you take all types of patients into that trial or can you use some machine learning tools mm -hmm. to better understand what are the types of patients that, that can be clearly identified, uh, you know, those types of patients who are more likely to benefit from the drug. Those, you know, so that differentiation between the sort of responders and non-responders to whatever new drug you're making or biological vaccine. So what we are finding is that uh, there, is, uh, there is a myth that machine learning can only be used when you have 20, 30, 30, 40,000 people, very large uh, number of no, that's not, in, that's not correct. When done properly, and that's the key, right? When done properly, uh, we have found that there is value add for using machine learning tools, even for relatively modest sized clinical trials, only like maybe two or 300 people, uh, we can still use these effectively. I have like two questions. Uh, one, uh, one is like, uh... What I have understood from applications of the data-based approaches in uh, process development. Uh, uh, Sumit, just, just a minute. Uh, just to let everyone know, uh, there's a big thunderstorm uh, going on right now. So if, if I lose power, because this happened two hours ago, that's the reason. So I'm not putting my laptop down. It's just that we might lose power. So just, just a heads up. Okay, please go ahead. So. Uh, one of the uh, I am I am not very much uh, into data analysis and all those part, but uh, what I have understood from my colleagues who works on this area is that one of the problems is uh, those who do this data analytical part and apply it for say process development. So a process guy may not know what is how to uh, use data analysis, and a data analytical guy who do this data analysis may not know actual process. So how uh, do you feel like, is there a guess, gap between these two streams and how th how is that tackled in industry? And yeah, that's a, uh, another thing I have is like about the uh, amount of data because most of this like multivariate data analytical approaches require huge variability in the data sets. 
and generally for the applications like you mentioned is it not possible to get a very structured data set experiments done right so it will be for a random from different uh, sources that you get those data so how do you like uh, manage those uh, large amount of data sets and the variability that is required yeah great questions uh, so the first one uh, yes you're right uh, no no single person or no single skill set is going to be able to uh, to work in isolation on a project that's why it always takes a team very very important uh, so yeah so that that gets to your your first question uh, and uh, you know in terms of uh, of the second question um, can I, can, I, can I belabor and uh, ask you to expand a little bit on that first question itself because that's in fact that is one of the major problems that I'm also having right now in our own company and, and people that I interact with the language we use is so different right the statisticians this is a, just English language that we use is different so how do you overcome like what is the education system going to be changed or is there, should there be some courses across you know if I'd love to like elaborate a little bit on that yeah it's it's a it's a, it is a challenge and so you know in in some sense uh, having done this for many years, I mean, of course, I've, I've appreciated starting a while back that it, as I said, it does take a team. And so, you know, we know what we know and we know, we know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're absolutely right. What, what seems to be happening right now, and I, I've detected this, this interestingly uh, on, uh, in the commercial division at Merck. So I, I work in the, in the R&D division that's called Merck Research Labs but we also have a counterpart commercial division, marketing division, uh, you know, which is a branch American company. So very interesting, uh, three weeks ago, I was in a conversation where I, uh, I learned something very interesting. Um, there are about 300 people in that organization that have either data science or data analytics uh, as part of their, their job role. Uh, their title. But it turns out that upon further examination, and I'll, I'll, I'll spare the details, well, it is confidential, I cannot reveal it anyway. But as we took a closer look, it turned out that only 20 out of these 300 plus people were truly data scientists. Now, it, and so I want to be very careful here, it doesn't mean that the other 280 plus people were not adding value they were definitely adding value, right? But they were adding value in, in ways that almost remained hidden under a generic label like data scientists. So, so I, I think where, where we have to be careful is not, you know, where a lot of the world seems to be going is if you call yourself a data scientist, there is a perception perhaps baked in some reality that you, you will command a very high, salary, which is somewhat true if you use that. But then of course, you cannot hide behind that label because the truth is going to come out. And you know, it's like, you know, you might have a very valuable skill set, but you know, it's not fully aligned with, with the term data scientist. Now, uh, I've asked many statisticians over the years, uh, by the way, and including people who call themselves data scientists, do you know where, this, where the term data science came from? Nobody knows, right? Well, I know. 
I know because the term data science came from Bell Labs, right? So there was there was a statistician there who coined the term data science, uh, and so in a in a very high level manner of speaking, I mean you know there is no single definition of data science, but basically what he was laying out was you know it would help for the person who's a data scientist uh, to have maybe some at least relevant knowledge in statistics, some relevant knowledge of computer science and some relevant knowledge of whatever application that you're gonna be working on. So whether it's uh, biologics, whether it's vaccines, whether it's you know commercial Wall Street type work, manufacturing, it doesn't matter, right? So what, what I've appreciated over the years is that, you know, I mean, we work so closely with our colleagues in, in manufacturing. We work so closely with our colleagues in clinical, in marketing. As long as there is a full appreciation that no single person has that skill set, and as long as there is continued education, that no single person can own the term data science, right? I think progress could be made, but uh, yeah. So again, uh, great question, a long answer to that simple question. But my my main summary point is is that you know we have to be really careful. Just because somebody, if if you want to quote hire a data scientist, make sure you look under the hood. You know what what skill set are you really hiring uh, beyond beyond just a label? So. Uh, you know, so it is, and it's not like they have to be experts in statistics, but they have to know basic statistics, you know, the, the basic principles of statistics. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they don't, they insert, they certainly could acquire that with, with the proper training. Likewise, you know, in, so ultimately it's all about, you know, being strong in one area and that depends on your formal training. So if, if a trained as a chemist, I mean, a chemist can be a data scientist, of course. Uh, a statistician can be a data scientist. A computer scientist can be a data scientist. Yes, mm. but it doesn't mean that just because you're a, you're a statistician, you're a data scientist. Just because you're a computer scientist, you're a data scientist, and so on. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, maybe the second question that Sumit asked I, <laughs> was variability. I guess right, variability. How do you? Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. I saw your your second question, if I remember correctly, was different types and different sources of data. Uh, so this 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 multi-variable framework. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. So it's because we are running into this all the time. So uh, the question that was asked earlier about biomarkers, right? That's an example where you have you have so many different sources of information on a given patient and you don't know which factor or factors collectively uh, segregate responders from non-responders, right? And that is really hard to do, but that is where the gold is, right? Because ultimately, I mean, what is precision medicine, uh, right? It is, it is all about matching the right patient for the right treatment. Uh, and, you know, I, I've been telling my team for many, many years you know, there are two things that you cannot escape. One is taxes. And one is that one day, whether you like it or not, you will be a patient. 
right? So always think like a patient. When you go to get a prescription, you want to be assured that the prescription that you're getting is going to work for you. You will get cured or you will feel better. You will feel well, right? And so all of us on this call, regardless of your background, regardless of your job role, regardless of your, if you're a CEO uh, or an ordinary statistician like myself, you know, it doesn't matter what your background is or your training is. If you are ultimately, if you're going to be thinking about uh, things like precision medicine, which are so personal to all of us, right? To, to the question back to, to Summit, I mean, you know, this, this is what it's all about is that it's, it's, it's very easy to say, I've looked at, at these markers and I haven't found anything that, that tell me whether this patient will respond or not. You have to keep expanding that. And, and maybe, maybe there is partial information in there. You augment that with something else and then the pieces fall together. And now you have find the perfect explanation, uh, what we call the perfect signature, you know, with, with certain inputs that if you can develop that signature, that, 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 that predictive signature, uh, you can now say, okay, well, I have a predictive signature. I'm now very, very close to predicting based on this type of information put together on you as a patient. And I can tell you whether drug A, drug B, or drug C, which is the best drug for you. Okay. Uh, any other uh, questions or follow-up? Mm -hmm. I have a simple one. Uh, <clears throat> for, uh, so I had a friend who told me once that you need to pick up at least one programming language and it'll be very useful in whatever industry that you are in. So I, I wanted to start learning a bit of Python. So in your suggestion in, in our field, what is the kind of um, programming language that will be the most useful? Like, I, I'm not sure how much I can implement in my process, but to at least learn it and see how I can use it later is something that I'm looking forward to trying to do. Yeah, thanks actually, a really good question. Uh, yeah, I would, I would encourage uh, everyone uh, Data science is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to be this this all encompass en encompassing term that no matter where you work, in some shape or form, you will be called upon to be a data scientist. And with that in mind, uh, it is very helpful to be ready for that. If you're not there already, uh, Python is an excellent excellent thing that if you can, uh, even if you become reasonably familiar, you don't, you don't have to become an expert, but becoming reasonably familiar with Python would be very, very helpful. If you think that you might want to uh, approach uh, a career in data science, uh, then you definitely would have to learn more, uh, more languages. Uh, and the language that is, I would strongly recommend is R. Uh, so it is, uh, and what's nice about R and Python, these tools are available for free. Uh, and you know, unlike uh, older people like myself, I grew up in grad school. We, we use SAS, and you know, I still use SAS. And uh, every year, I keep telling myself. Uh, so I know a little bit of R now, uh, but Python is on my list. It's one of my personal goals by by the end of this year to have learned Python.
But I think uh, Jade or, or Indy, usually like, today's, it's raining, it's maybe it's not your days. But uh, I guess, um, so I have like a more like a general question. Um, it seems like you have a lot of experience mentoring. Um, and I was wondering like how that, if you could talk a little bit about like how that works um, at Merck. So for example, like when someone joins the company, um, it's she or he like are assigned like um, with mentors. And if you could talk a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, thank you for that excellent question. Uh, Merck, uh, I'm very happy to report, we invest very heavily in people development. Uh, so uh, anybody who comes in, regardless of level, whether you're a junior or, or a midterm person, uh, you, are, you obviously have a manager that you work closely with. The manager will assign your projects, but we, we also assign you what we call uh, a buddy. Uh, and that buddy is, is there to really help you navigate this new environment. Uh, so that, that buddy is your friend. Uh, and that person is, you know, these are pretty uh, senior people, pretty uh, seasoned people. So it's not like, you know, yet, an, you know, if you come and say you're fresh out of grad school or something, your, your buddy is not going to be like another fresh PhD. This is somebody who's worked for at least like, you know, 10 years. Uh, and that person also plays the role of mentor. Uh, so we, we like to differentiate the, the manager role from the mentor role. It's not like the manager does not play a mentor role, obviously he or she does, but sometimes there, there's, there are some situations where a little more independence, uh, a, a safer environment to speak up and to be more engaging, uh, to talk about your aspirations, to talk about some issues, uh, so uh, and really to 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 talk about what are you passionate about? What are the types of things? What other lanes do you want to swim in? Right? Those are the kind of things managers sometimes like to hold on to. That people don't take my person. I have a lot of projects. Right? That is why. Uh, yes. So we invest very heavily uh, in uh, in people uh, when when they come in. Mentoring plays a very important role. For many years, we've actually had uh, a formal mentorship program where people across departments and sometimes across divisions uh, get mentored. Uh, and so maybe a senior level person uh, who works say in the chemistry area might be a mentor for an incoming or say a, you know, a statistician who's been there for a few years, just as an example. Uh, so again, giving them a broader perspective, you know, uh, sort of far from what they do on, on a day-to-day -day basis, just to broaden their horizons. Any any other questions? Because I have a, you know, I'll do my usual. Devin, I do a, a rapid round for you with you. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, and you have to answer like in one word or something. <laughs> but <laughs> if there's any last questions that anybody has, around, uh, can you? Uh elaborate what, uh, whether there are like differences in the career paths for uh, statisticians and uh, data scientists uh, like like uh, been hearing like statisticians whispers that uh, like there's uh, still benefits of like uh, choosing uh, like late stage clinical trial because like that's the more stable <laughs> to to stay in the, in the industry and like it brings you the like FDA submission experience 
Yeah, great question. So I, I, I don't think there is, there's a perfect answer to that question. It all depends on your interest. Uh, in, in general, uh, I would say that uh, this, this gets back to that earlier question you had, Chong, about, you know, if you can continue to, uh, to broaden your experiences. So you, you could say start out uh, in, in early clinical development applications uh, or even before that in, in discovery or preclinical. I spent the first three years of my career in, in the discovery and preclinical area. I learned a lot. Then I made my way into early clinical, then into late clinical. Uh, and ideally, that is something that you could consider. So again, you know, there's no right or wrong. Uh, I would just encourage everyone uh, to, you know, don't don't get into a narrow comfort zone. Uh, you might you might think that you are safe, but uh, it you are you are limiting your growth. Uh, and so you know, always challenge yourself, and you know, and challenge yourself. Uh, and I don't want to repeat what I said earlier, but again, don't be afraid to fail. Uh, I, I'm getting a little nervous about uh, Naren's now rapid fire questions. <laughs> Boy, there's not, nothing, nothing to be afraid of anyway. So let, let's, let's do it. Um, so, um, and, and they're, no, they're, they're in no particular order of ease or difficulty. They're all easy, generally. Um, okay, your, your favorite clinical trial result because the reason I ask it is because phase three trials are, or, or any trials are blinded, and then suddenly you see, you, you're the first people who see the results, your favorite result. So my, my favorite clinical trial result, uh, there was a, a landmark clinical trial for Merck's HIV vaccine called the STEP trial. Uh, I, I was the, the lead statistician for the trial. And this was a vaccine that was, uh, that the whole world was waiting for. Uh, uh, and uh, that trial was stopped early because the vaccine was had failed miserably. It was the most promising vaccine at the time, but midway through the trial, we had planned an interim analysis and, and that, that trial ended a 10 year journey of our HIV vaccine program, which by the way, I had to explain from start to finish the 10 year journey uh, to somebody who's been in the news quite a bit he, he and several other important people came to Merck. So I had to explain that journey to, to Tony Fauci. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, your, your favorite, uh, there are many, but your favorite Nobel Prize winner and maybe, and why? Oh my goodness. Uh, I guess it would have to be Curie uh, uh, having won two, two uh, Nobel Prizes. Uh, I think that's, that's my main reasons. Like, I'm like, wow. I like wow, wow. <laughs> um, uh, I know you have been many. So, uh, any mentor that you you feel like you know you you feel like made a difference in your life and in, in your career? Yeah, most certainly. Like I mentioned earlier in the meeting, uh, my two grandfathers, uh, un unquestionably, I've learned my my whole uh, the the way to to approach life, the way to approach problems. And to do it with a sense of, uh, hopefully, uh, of humility, but excitement about what is yet to come. So that is what I learned from both of them. Wow. Um, your favorite travel destination uh, that you've been to? Uh, Portugal. Portugal. Uh, any reason or just good time? Yeah, it was, it was, it was very different. Hmm. 
Uh, what book are you reading now? I'm reading a book uh, called, it's, it's a little older book. It's by Eric Topol called the, the Creative Destruction of Medicine. And it's, it's, it's basically about digital R&D, uh, about, uh, about how, uh, you know, how these newer technologies are going to change how, med how medicine is practiced. Eric Topol is the same person who sort of tweets a lot about the back, about what's going on in the, um, with the disease now. Yeah. Same, same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, I was going to ask this question later, but since you answered, since you are reading that book, uh, what is the one thing you would like to, to change or improve in the drug development process that sort of doesn't work and has to dramatically change? Uh, I guess I'll go back to uh, precision medicine or, or personalized medicine. Is mm -hmm. that because you know the, the reality is that, with rare exception, uh, almost every drug ever approved and that is being used in the marketplace. Typically, these drugs only work for half the people that are going to get them, mm. and that is a shame. That is a shame. Mm. And so, so we need to do everything we can based on our skill set, our experience, whatever we bring to the table, to to improve that. So that I'm envisioning a world where, you know, every drug that is approved is is approved not for everyone, but approved for only the right types of patients. That for these types of patients, this drug, and you know, there's a resistance from drug companies for reasons that are understandable but not forgivable. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, uh, there are couple of questions which are redundant to what you've asked, um, but I'll ask it in a different way. Um, so I knew about the step trial, so I was hoping that you would answer that, that question, that answer. But uh, my question is, uh, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times now that it, you should fail, it, it's good to fail or you should learn from your failure. Any, any failure that you think uh, you learned from other than the step trial, obviously, that you want to share? Uh, where do I begin? There have been so many. <laughs> just any one or two, one or two, just high level. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think my one of my early failures, which I, I wish I had, I had, uh, I've become aware sooner. But it was it was a, it was a question of of lack of self awareness. And so when I came out of grad school, you know, I was, uh, I I I thought. I, I thought I knew everything in statistics, uh, and you know, which obviously was 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 totally bogus. Uh, but uh, I I realized, unfortunately, only after a few years that when we got new PhD candidates looking for jobs, I was made aware, unfortunately, late rather than early, that you know you ask a lot of questions in these seminars, but the way you were asking the question really puts that person at unease and it almost embarrasses them. Mm. And of course, and I was so shocked by that. I was so saddened by that. You know, I thought I was doing the person a favor by sort of saying, well, have you considered this, this new idea? But of course, you know, this person had spent three years or four years working on a PhD. They had come up with this brilliant idea. And in five minutes I had said, well, it's kind of nice, but here's something much better. And of course, it was only later on I realized I was trying to help them, but my gosh, if that if somebody did that to me, I would I would feel so small and insignificant. So I, I'm so blessed that somebody made me aware of this. And to the best of my knowledge, I have not been doing that anymore. 
Oh, wow. that's a beautiful answer. Thank you. And then one last one is um, um, advice you'd give the um, give, give these folks, but also um, advice as far as when they go for an interview in a company like Merck, obviously the subject matter is a given that they have to know. But in addition to the subject matter, what are the what are the couple of things that are, that you look for in a candidate? Yeah, uh, great question. I, I'm looking for uh, curiosity. I'm looking for um, you know the things that I mentioned earlier. I mean, is this person displaying enthusiasm? Is this person displaying uh, genuineness? Uh, because uh, you know, I I actually enjoy interviews uh, that are imperfect and that have clear examples where somebody is displaying uh, imperfections. But if somebody comes across as being too polished and too rehearsed, uh, it actually sometimes doesn't go well. So again, you know, for example, if if uh, if you ask a question and if the other person is is not prepared, I would much rather that person say, you know, great question. I'm sorry, I just don't know the answer. I have no clue. But people will try and fudge their way through. Uh, and so again, maybe it's a matter of style, but I'm just sort of expressing my preference that, you know, I would much rather have that person say, yep, no idea. Yeah, that's it, thank you. Uh, I hope the questions are not too difficult. <laughs> you, you gave great answers, by the way, fantastic. Um, well, thank you. Can, can, I, uh, can I share my, my, uh, my very first job interview? Yes, uh, please. <laughs> so my, my very first job interview, uh, when I came out of grad school, was with a company called Merck. Uh, uh, and this, this person, uh, you know, very, very famous statistician at the time, he, uh, he looked at my CV, he had his head down, and then he looks up and he says, do you want me to ask you two easy questions or one difficult question? So I said, wow, this is uh, very interesting. I remember, I was just out of school uh, I said, ask me one difficult question. Uh, so he said, okay, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And I was like, wow, this is a very interesting place. Uh, so, I, so I said, well, I would have to say the chicken. And he said, why? And I said, I'm sorry, you can only ask me one question. True, true story, true story. And of course, I thought I thought I was being funny, uh, and I thought I, I might have, you know. And I I gave a presentation. I thought it went well. Uh, the end result was uh, either because he didn't like that answer, or my presentation was wasn't as good as I thought it was. I did not get the job, and I had to wait almost six years uh, to 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 go back to Merck and, and actually get a job. Oh my God, that's a beautiful story. It wasn't Joe Hayes, was it? No, it was not Joe Hayes. It was, it was somebody who, who worked in the West Point area. All right. No, because Joe Hayes is a legend, right? That's what it is, of course. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you so much. This was such, such a pleasurable, uh, enjoyable hour. Thank you for spending this evening with us. And uh, thank you all of you also for coming and asking these nice questions. Right. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. It was wonderful meeting all of you. And again, uh, all the best. Uh, I really enjoyed 
and my and my gosh, what an international and geographically dispersed crowd. This is fantastic. And by the way, you guys are really lucky to have Naren uh, teaching you because he is he is as good as it gets. So 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 thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much. A network should last a lifetime. Let us help you create lasting professional relationships with our world-class mentors through the Biopatrika Industry Mentorship Program. A strategic guidance program unlike no other, full of expert interviews, industry internship opportunities, CV writing, inflection point analysis, life maps, and of course, the gateway to your dream career. For a limited time only, all our services are freely available for you as we truly want you to succeed. Thank you.